Welcome to the Game Changers podcast, where we connect trending evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today, we're talking about cardiovascular outcomes, comparing the use of two commonly used medications. Is hydrochlorothiazide better than chlorothaladone? Listen in to find out. So today is uh, we're going to review a paper that I, I'm not going to lie, I've been, I've been looking forward to for two or three years now. And I mean, that tells you what kind of geek I am that I'm looking forward to studies being published. <laughs> but uh, this was a paper that was uh, recently published in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at um, a hydrochlorothiazide versus chlorothalidone in the, in the treatment of hypertension. And so, you know, what we're going to get into the study itself, but as you all know, hypertension, uh, the prevalence is increasing. And now part of that, of course, may be to the changing definition. Remember that when the uh, uh, 2018 American Heart Association guidelines came out, they kind of lowered the floor uh, for what was considered um, high blood pressure. Really anything over 120 over 80 was considered high blood pressure. And really anything over 130 was, uh, you know, full hypertension that you wanted to consider either lifestyle modifications or actual treatments, depending on your uh, ASCVD score and how high the blood pressure was. So, you know, they say I'd, I'd, I'd read something at the time where they you know that, that the percent of patients with hypertension like went from like 38% to almost 50% of patients like almost overnight because of the change in, in guidelines. But the bottom line is that, you know, we know that blood pressures, you know, in the 120 range are beneficial compared to those even in the 130 range. Uh, the SPRINT study and some other studies that have been published in the last 10 years or so have really shown that even though they've lowered the floor for, for what is considered, you know, high blood pressure and hypertension, um, that, that there's still a benefit to do that. And uh, even in older patients who are, or as long as they're ambulatory, and don't suffer a lot of adverse effects, they have found that trying to get people's blood pressure in kind of the 120 range is still beneficial. So, um, you know, while we can argue, you know, if we change the definition of, of hypertension is, is, you know, is that real or not, uh, there's no denying that we have several large randomized control trials that then suggest that blood pressure on 120 are really where you want to go. And of course, you don't want to drop people's blood pressures too much, you know, the J curve of, of hypertension and all that. But, but on the whole, you know, we should probably be a little more aggressive, you know, in in general, I think, in, in treating people's blood pressure. So, and one of the drugs to do that, of course, are thiazide diuretics, um, you know, which are have been long, long considered one of the first line drugs for hypertension. They work by mechanisms that we're still not entirely sure of, even though these drugs have now been out for, you know, 65 years. Uh, we know that, of course, that at first they decrease blood volume, but as time goes on, that kind of gets equilibrated. And we know that there's other mechanisms that the thiazides have in lowering blood pressure beyond that. Uh, though, again, I think a lot of them still remain to be elucidated. Uh, the All Hat study um, uh, that came out in 2004, it's hard to believe that we're almost 20 years out from the All Hat study. I tell my students that, you know, this was uh, the study that was designed once and for all to say, okay, when somebody comes into their primary care physician's office and get diagnosed with hypertension, what drug should they be sent out on? And of course, it didn't answer that question. But at the time, what they found was that thiazide diuretics were at least as good, if not better, than ACE inhibitors and calcium channel blockers at decreasing heart outcomes, including cardiovascular disease and renal outcomes. And so um, for some more veteran listeners, you may remember the JNC7 report of the early 2000s that really, really, you know, hyped um, um, hydrochlorothiazide or thiazide diuretics, basically saying, you know, really, you know, unless there's a reason to use another medication, that's the drug that, that we should use. Now, one of the things that was always interesting about that, uh, that study and really any uh, NIH-sponsored study was that the thiazide diuretic that was used in, in those studies was, was chlorthalidone and not hydrochlorothiazide. And early studies did suggest the chlor 
hydrochlorothalidone was superior to hydrochlorothiazide in patients with hypertension. Now, most of these were retrospective or observational studies, but that plus the fact that all randomized control trial data did use chlorothalidone, you know, made more recent guidelines say, you know, you know, you can use any thiazide that you want, but we probably preferentially want to pick chlorothalidone. And from a pharmacologic standpoint, it makes sense because chlorothalidone is more potent than hydrochlorothiazide and has a much longer half-life. So, I mean, there was actually some, some biological plausibility why the two uh, of the two medications, chlorothalidone, may be superior. But as anyone who practices medicine knows, very few patients are on, on chlorothalidone. The paper notes that, that we're going to review notes that 1.5 million persons received prescriptions for, for chlorothalidone in the United States in the last couple of years compared to 11.5 million patients who received prescriptions for hydrochlorothiazide. And why that is, of course, is, is probably that uh, hydrochlorothiazide, like furosemide, is just kind of burned into the brains of, of physicians. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's the one they think of, it's the one they reach for first, you know, and, and so, I mean, I don't think there's a, there's an intentional bias against chlorothalidone. I just think, you know, they're kind of taught, you know, euthiazide, hydrochlorothiazide, and that's just the one they reach for. Plus it's, it's important to remember that uh, hydrochlorothiazide is far more common as a, as, as combination products. So with an ACE inhibitor, with a calcium channel blocker together, as, as chlorothalidone really doesn't have that. So for what, you know, for whatever reason, hydrochlorothiazide, at least in the United States, has become uh, the, the thiazide uh, diuretic of choice. But again, there is these, these earlier studies that suggest that chlorothalidone may, uh, may be better for outcomes. And so the, to answer the question once and for all, uh, here comes the VA, which I was very glad to see and had heard about the study being done, you know, two, uh, three or four years ago, the diuretic comparison project. And this aimed to evaluate whether chlorothalidone compared to hydrochlorothiazide would reduce the rate of major non-fatal cardiovascular disease outcomes and non-cancer-related death in older patients with hypertension. And so, you know, again, you know, looking forward to the study for a long, long time, I was very happy to see it come out. It was a study done, again, in the Veterans Affairs Department, and it was a very interesting study because uh, they, they use what's, what's becoming pretty common in the VA system, a multi-center pragmatic open-label study where they actually use electronic medical records to, to basically monitor patients and, you know, not requiring extra, you know, physician visits for stuff like that. And, and basically, uh, you know, they, they take a look at the electronic medical records to basically identify patients who might be, might be candidates for the study. They let the physician or provider who's, who's taking care of that patient know what's going on. The uh, randomization process is much more streamlined and stuff like that. And then they monitor the outcomes by electronic medical records. So again, it's, you know, it greatly saves the money uh, uh, and, and personnel required to do a randomized control a prospective study. And um, this, this type of pragmatic open label study has been now validated uh, in, the, in the VA system several times. And so it's kind of interesting. I, again, if you don't work in a large enclosed system, I, I doubt you'd be able to do this in, in any other type of system. Maybe large uh, HMOs might be able to pull this off or, or other health systems in, in other countries. But the VA is really the only you know closed system I can think of that's big enough they could pull off these kind of studies. And so that's kind of how the, how the trial was done. The inclusion criteria for the study was very broad. And so you, know, you got to give them credit for really pretty much taking almost all comers with hypertension. Uh, all you had to do is be at least 65 years old, have a diagnosis of hypertension and apostolic blood pressure of at least 120 at the most recent clinical visit, and then be on hydrochlorothiazide at doses of 25 to 50 milligrams a day. I always tell my students that really doses above 25 milligrams really don't do anything. I mean, we know pretty well that cap of effectiveness of, of thiazide diuretics or hydrochlorothiazide really tops off at about 25 milligrams, and doses above that really just give you side effects more than anything else. Um, they could take um, other uh, medications, but they couldn't take other combination medications, right? Uh, they couldn't have um, 
um, a hypokalemia, which kind of makes sense in the, in the last 90 days. Uh, they also couldn't have significant hyponatremia, which they uh, um, defined as a sodium of less than 130. Um, and then that was really at the exclusion criteria was, uh, again, they tried to make this as broad as possible to, to really uh, include as many people as possible. Of course, you know, there would be no way this kind of study would be done in the, in the private sector, really, because, you know, who, you know, who would who would fund such a, a large study? And, you know, since nobody would really benefit, certainly no drug company would ever sponsor it. So again, you know, kudos to the VA for, for you know, realizing this is an important clinical question to answer and trying to get trying to, to, to get the answer uh, through this pragmatic study, basically. So um, as I mentioned, you know, primary care providers within the participating VA center systems were identified. They were approached, uh, you know, by means of an electronic informed consent within the EHRs that explained the purposes and risk of participation. After providers gave consent, their patient records were electronically screened for eligibility, and then eligible patients were mailed a recruitment letter and an informed consent document. And again, that's you know kind of interesting how they were able to identify patients remotely, basically, and uh, oral informed consent was obtained if the patient agreed to participate. After that was obtained, uh, they basically kept patients who were already on hydrochlorothiazide. They divided the group in two groups. One group was kept on their hydrochlorothiazide uh, dose according to the current prescription. And then patients that were assigned to switch to chlorthalidone were assigned medication orders, basically discontinuing hydrochlorothiazide and then starting chlorthalidone at doses of 12.5 to 25 milligrams based on what dose of hydrochlorothiazide they were on. So if they were on 25 of hydrochlorothiazide, they were started at 12.5 and 50 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide they were started by chlorthalidone at 25. Now, you know, even though chlorthalidone is more potent, I think one of the, one of the things we're going to talk about later on with this paper is that the mean dose of these drugs was relatively low. So that may, may have something to do with the study itself. So the primary outcome uh, was the, the first, uh, first occurrence of a composite of, of non-fatal cardiovascular disease or non-cancer-related uh, death. They included in their definition of non-fatal cardiovascular disease, uh, MI, stroke, hospitalization for heart failure, or urgent cardiovascular revascularization for unstable angina. Secondary outcomes were the individual components of the primary outcome. Again, they looked all, at all data extracted from, an, from the electronic medical record and then looked at the data at, at the, as far as the baseline from the one most proximal to before the randomization date. Uh, then coexisting conditions were identified by VA claims data and follow blood pressure since all that is entered in the medical record was also looked at um, as well as medication prescription refills. So again, Again, uh, because this is a closed system, largely, um, they were able to kind of track, maybe not adherence, but at least patients picking up their prescriptions as well. So, um, so uh, stats, uh, I, I think, deserve some, some talk here because of the outcomes. Power is going to be very important when we, did, when we talk about the study. This was an event-driven study, and they calculated that about 1,055 primary outcome events would provide the trial with 90% power to detect a 17.5% lower hazard for the chlorthalidone compared to the hydrochlorothiazide, and that assumed a 3% annual incidence of the uh, uh, primary outcome in the hydrochlorothiazide. So basically, they were looking for a 17% decrease in the primary outcome of chlorothalidone compared to hydrochlorothiazide, relatively speaking, of course, not, not absolutely speaking. They did use, I mean, pretty standard statistics. I think the power is kind of the, the big thing to, 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 to keep in mind when we take a look at the outcomes, but they did use a log rank test that were stratified to, to each individual system. They did look at a secondary analysis model Model that they with adjusted Cox proportional hazard ratios that they looked uh, for a model that controlled for age, gender, uh, race, uh, estimated uh, GFR, baseline diabetes, and a history of MI or stroke. Um, they also did uh, pre-specified subgroup analysis uh, with regard to median age, 
race, uh, estimated GFR uh, greater than or less than 60 uh, mils per minute of eGFR, a gender, the presence of absence or diabetes, a history of myocardial infarction or stroke, and, and a mean systolic blood pressure baseline. So again, I think they did a pretty good job as far as looking at the individual analyses and, and a priori doing some, some subgroup analyses of, that would certainly be a, a interesting to learn. So what did they find in this, in this study? Uh, we are going to discuss the results of the study after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Have you purchased your 2023 CE Impact membership yet? Go to ceimpact.com so you don't miss out on getting CE for great education like this podcast. Go to ceimpact.com to learn more. So we're back taking a look at uh, the diuretic comparison project. Uh, again, as, as I mentioned before, a study I've been looking forward to for a long time to try and determine once and for all, is chlorthalidone better than hydrochlorothiazide in patients with hypertension? Um, and, and what did they find in the study? So taking a look at the baseline characteristics, they're pretty much what you'd expect in a VA population. Mean age was about 72, 97% of patients were male. Again, you know, given, the, given that we're talking about the VA here, uh, the vast majority of patients were, were white, about 70 77% in both groups. Um, uh, about 45% of patients res resided in a rural area. Body mass index was 31 between the two. And again, not that surprising uh, uh, taking a look at this at this population. About 45% of, of, of patients in both groups had diabetes. About 8% had heart failure. About 4% had history of MI and about 8% had a history of stroke. About one quarter of patients did have an estimated GFR of less than 60 mils per minute. Um, you know, that is important because when we take a look at thiazide diuretics, the Theoretically, the teaching has always been that as creatinine clearances drop, that, that thiazide uh, diuretics become less effective. There is actually some studies now that, that refute that, that suggest that given that, that the mechanism of action of thiazide diuretics goes beyond just uh, you know, going to the distal tubule and causing you to, to release more sodium and water, that the, the effectiveness of thiazide diuretics may not necessarily be decreased in patients with poor creatinine clearances. But in any event, three quarters of these patients actually had GFRs greater than 60, about one quarter were smoking. And then uh, about 95% of patients were re receiving 25 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide. Again, not that surprising considering this was the VA. Mean solid blood pressure, however, was 139. And again, keeping in mind that the new goals are, are, are less than 130 over 80. That was, you know, again, these uh, the vast majority of these patients were what I would consider not at goal in these patients. And what, of course, that meant was that uh, up to about one half of patients were on not just hydrochlorothiazide, but two to three additional blood pressure medications. So um, you could argue these were fairly uh, resistant high blood pressure, but I, I think you, what you could certainly say is that just kind of how the trend of high blood pressure treatment is going in the United States, that we're, we're using more and more medications and patients, again, in this effort to try and drive uh, a stock blood pressures down to the goal of 120. So uh, as far as the results of the study, they uh, asked about 6,200 uh, providers for per participation and 67% of them said, okay. And then of, of the patients that they were seeing those providers, uh, uh, 16,595 patients did consent. And in the end, uh, about 13,500 patients uh, underwent randomization. So very large study, uh, which was good to hear. And, and remember, though, that, that it, uh, the end of the study isn't necessarily what we're looking for with power because this was an event-driven study, right? So uh, their medium follow-up was 2.5 years. So um, from the start of the study to 2.5 years, the primary composite outcome occurred in 1,377 patients. 10.4% uh, of those were in the chlorthalidone group, and 10% of patients were in the hydrochloride 
hydrochlorothiazide group. Uh, so the hazard ratio uh, was actually uh, 1.04 with a confidence interval that crossed one. So there was no statistically significant difference between chlorothalidone and hydrochlorothiazide as far as the primary outcome event was concerned. Um, they found that the observed annual event rate was 4.5% in the chlorothalidone group and 4.3% in the hydrochlorothiazide group. Um, and, and so I, the numbers of the annual observed events were actually much less than they expected. And that might be one of the reasons why they, they didn't find a difference between the two. Uh, there was no difference uh, between the groups as, as they took a look at each individual primary um, outcome. And so when they just took a look at, at, at stroke or, or MI or something like that, there was no difference between the groups. Um, they then did the subgroup analyses. And again, overall, they did not find any statistically significant difference between chlorthalidone and hydrochlorothiazide in any of these subgroups, you know, age, gender, things along those lines. However, in patients with a history of uh, MI or stroke, there was a lower incidence of the primary outcome, 14.3% uh, in patients with chlorthalidone compared to 19.4% of patients um, in the hydrochlorothiazide group, and that did reach statistical significance. Um, patients in the chlorthalidone group who did not have a history of myocardial infarction or stroke had a slightly higher incidence, as we've talked about, compared, compared to hydrochlorothiazide. Now, again, you know, considering that the primary uh, outcome was negative and the subgroup analysis was positive, you know, I was always kind of taught when, when, when the overall outcome is negative, but one of the subgroups is positive, it's, it's also likely that the, that difference is just a play of chance, that it may not actually be uh, uh, statistically significant. So, um, you know, really in the real, you know, in, in a perfect world, we would probably do a follow-up study only in patients with, who have a history of MR stroke. But as you might imagine, that's probably never going to happen. In fact, this is probably going to be the last big word on, on the treatment of chlorthalidone and hydrochlorothiazide, because I just don't see any other group ever really having the ability to pull this kind of study off. The other big point is I wanted to, to mention is that the uh, average dose of chlorthalidone was 12.3 milligrams in the chlorthalidone group and 23 milligrams in the hydrochlorothiazide group. And I would argue that dose is probably too low. We really should be trying to shoot for 25 milligrams of chlorthalidone as well. And so I, and, and, and if you take a look at the, the editorial surrounding this paper and some other things I've read online is, is you know, the two big issues that may cloud the, the results of the study is one, uh, it was an underpowered study uh, because of a lower than expected event rate. Uh, again, as, as we said, that the, the primary outcome event was expected to occur in 13.5% in of patients, yet the actual percentage was only 10.4%, which probably affects inter interpretation of the study. Um, you know, again, that's always one of the strikes or, or concerns about event-driven uh, papers is that if your event uh, occurrence is much less than you expect, that does lower the power of your, of, of your study. But again, the overall, the numbers were very, very close to each other. So even with, uh, you know, 13,000 patients, uh, one wonders if, if uh, um, they had the same number of events, would it resulted in statistically significant difference. Um, patients were eligible to present only if they continue to have hypertension while receiving hydrochlorothiazide. Again, you know, the average uh, systolic blood pressure was almost 140. And despite the fact that 95% that of these patients were receiving uh, hydrochlorothiazide, basically. Um, and then only 13% of these patients were receiving hydrochlorothiazide alone. So again, you, you know, in patients who have mild hypertension or hypertension that they're just starting to treat, you know, again, would chlorothalidone be, be a better choice on hydrochlorothiazide? And that's, you know, some of the critiques that people have had of the study. Um, to me, the big ones are, are the decreased power. Um, you know, whenever you have a negative study, that's something you always have to kind of keep in mind is, is you know, was the study powered to show a difference if one existed? Um, again, I think the study was underpowered, but I also think that, that looking at the numbers, uh, they probably would have needed, you know, far more events than even the ones they shot for to really uh, suggest a difference because they were just so close to each other. Um, and again, this was 
a study with with you know thirteen thousand patients, and they still uh, you know had a very very similar number. So again, you have to ask yourself, you know, how many more patients would they have had to have to have the events that they wanted, and that you know would probably be you know so large that that uh, you know it it would be unpracticable to to do another study to kind of take a look at that. And the same with the, with the lower dose. So I mean, really, uh, you know, I've been someone who's kind of advocated for chlorothaladone for a long time. Again, based on the on the all hat study, based on some of the some of these other earlier studies. And I think this is going to change what I do. I think this is going to change uh, my recommendations and say, you know, you know, I, apparently it doesn't matter all that much uh, between hydrochlorothiazide and chlorthalidone in, in patients with hypertension who are over age 65, especially in patients who are on, you know, three plus drugs to control, control their blood pressure. Um, perhaps the, the, the reason, you know, there's a, for, for the, you know, no real difference between the two, again, is these patients were on multiple medications for uh, controlling their blood pressure. And, and if you take a look at, at the stock blood pressure, they didn't, weren't able to do that. Um, you could argue an earlier treatment, maybe chlorthalidone would be better, but we have to kind of go with, with the data we have now here. And, and, and this really, I think, uh, you know, is probably going to be the last word on this. I, I just, I really don't think there's going to be another big study that really kind of takes a look at different subgroups. And so I think what we kind of take to the bank on this is it seems like in, in the majority of patients, there does not seem to be a clinically or statistically significant difference between hydrochlorothiazide and chlorthalidone. Uh, it is worth noting that there was slightly different, uh, different lower uh, potassiums in patients on chlorthalidone. It makes sense since it's, more, since it's a more potent medication, but there were no adverse effects that were really associated with that. So I think all those are giving together. And again, the fact that hydrochlorothiazide is dirt cheap, it is uh, physicians are comfortable with it. And it also uh, it comes uh, combined with many, many other antihypertensive medications, which improve adherence. I would say that hydrochlorothiazide and sticking with it is probably a fine thing to do in the vast, vast majority of, of hypertension patients. And I guess I'm going to start stop recommending chlorothaladone uh, over hydrochlorothiazide when, when my physicians ask me about this sort of thing. So uh, interesting study. And, uh, and again, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, the definition of game changer for at least for me, because it is, is really going to change how I approach uh, treating hypertension in the patients that I get consulted on. So, so that's it for this week of, of Game Changers. Thanks again for listening. Time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you then. Thank you, Jeff. Don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode or get access to the CE by becoming a member at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week on the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast.